Hello, and welcome to another episode of Endeavors. On today's show, musician, former member of Great Big C, author, and mental health advocate, Sean McCann, on his new album of Sea Shanties, how he's coped during the pandemic, and what being a mental health activist means to him. That's coming up on Endeavors. Yesterday, October 10th, was not only Thanksgiving Sunday, it was also World Mental Health Day. During this last year and a half of the pandemic, the conversations this uh, society is having around mental health and about mental health have dramatically increased. I know for me, it's something I've been um, focusing on a lot, not only talking about my own journey, but also, you know, sharing other people's stories, you know, I sharing memes about ADHD, um, which I did the other day, um, because mental health is so broad. One person that has been very brave in sharing his story about uh, mental health uh, and addiction is Sean McCann. You might remember uh, Sean as a founder and singer in the group Great Big C, um, which he played with for 20 years alongside Alan Doyle, Bob Hallett, and previously Daryl Power as well. But as Sean says, all was not rosy in that band. You know, he basically told the boys that at the end of the 20th anniversary tour, he was done. Um, he was partying too much and he needed to get sober. And over the last seven years or so, he has been touring both doing music uh, and speaking and doing what he doing what he calls uh, musical keynote speeches where he talks usually in song about his own mental health journey um, and addiction and it started with his 2014 album help yourself um, which signaled that he was ready to start over again and his 2015 album you know i love you um was inspired by the love he found in sharing that story and his attempts to find a connection in a world seduced by false social media uh of promise of real connectivity and you know he he talks a lot about just not only his own addiction with you know drugs or alcohol you know and and various uh you know and the various um pandemics that society faces, whether it's COVID or, or the opioids, but also the, this idea of um, t- 
technological addiction, you know, phones, internet, social media, that sort of thing. Um, he's become a very prominent activist. He also, you know, um, and he, we talk about that. And we also talk about his new album, Shantyman, uh, which is basically Sean singing a bunch of sea shanties. And he also talks about like this TikTok uh, trend that was earlier this year of TikTokers singing sea shanties and maybe not knowing what they originally meant or where they originally came from or, or why they were originally sung. He also has received an Order of Canada for his uh, mental health advocacy work. Um, anyway, that's enough for me. This is my conversation with Sean McCann. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. Sweet. Yeah. I, uh, my guitars are over there. So it's just kind of, this is where it all happens, man. <clears throat> yeah. It, it, uh, I mean, how, how have you found recording, you know, in, in the midst of a pandemic, how much has that, like, has that changed anything for you at all in terms of your approach? Yeah, well, it's, it really, uh, it really forced me to pre-produce uh, a lot more carefully because we didn't have the luxury of being face to face in a studio with Hoxley and Gordy and JP Cormier, uh, Hoxley Workman and, and Gordy Johnson. And uh, so I had to kind of, uh, you know, marry myself to the grid. So I was locked in and I used the Apple drummer. I had to learn how to use logic. So I had to learn a lot of things just to be able to do it. But, or, but as far as like, all the arrangements had to be done and nailed down and those hard decisions, the initial producer decisions had to be made um, accurately without input, without any kind of any of the cool flavors and colors. Um, so we had to I had to kind of try to anticipate uh, those things because of the remote nature of it. Like, again, normally I would be in a room with these people, these human music machines, and we'd figure it out. And it would have probably been a very different record, but we had we didn't have that luxury. So I sent off, I made the shape the songs and left holes for people to play, in, essentially. So, but once they were in that position, that's that's kind of where the the song was going to be. It you know we could there was very little room wiggle room then creatively after we established the template. You know, I I had a chance to listen to some of the the previews that are on the website. Um... And, you know, I think shanties themselves are, are a very old style of, 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 of song. Um, and I think you've done a really good job of, of, of putting a, a modern, modern touch to the modern feel. Um, what was it about the, the art and genre of, of a shanty in particular that uh, appealed to you at this specific time? Well, the shanties have been with me my entire life because I'm from Newfoundland and that's where shanties never went away. <laughs> it's, it's the land that shanties came to 500 years ago and literally stayed in the uh, in the folk music, the relevant contemporary on the radio, you know, every week. Uh, and bands were playing them. And of course, my band, Great Big Sea, we that was our bread and butter was sea shanties. And we we had access to a lot of them. 
And the, the sea shanty is interesting because it's a song designed specifically to enable people uh, back in the day, sailors or lumberjacks, depending on what side of the Atlantic you're from. But they were designed to enable us to do to accomplish difficult tasks like uh, hauling in fish over the side of a boat, uh, dragging wood out of the forest, uh, swinging axes, raising sails. Uh, again, without machines, the, these things were best done in unison with other other uh, men. And the song was the tempo, the beat that that made it an efficient use of labor. And uh, I just saw a, a parallel there. I mean, right now in COVID, we really are facing the biggest challenge as a human race that we've faced in many, many centuries, really. And it's the um, it's it's only going to we're only going to be successful if we actually do the work together. Like we all have to we all have to buy into this vaccination. We work together, social isolation. We all have to buy into this t in order to conquer this COVID, this this really challenge, this huge challenge. So on a philosophical level, the, the shanty couldn't have shown up at a better time for me. And, and now that's not, not not really why I went down that path. It was more about, for me, mentally, it was uh, the shanties also, they've been around so long, they have great melodies. They say a lot of cool stuff. And for me, they they require a physical act of singing. And I really enjoyed uh, just, you know, in, in the depths of winter here in Ottawa when it was dark and cold and in the absence of any live performances, I was just doing virtual work. It felt good every day to get up and stand in front of a mic, even by myself, and just belt out a sea shanty. I just, I can't explain why that is. It was just a physical release. And it really opened up my, my my lungs and my head and I felt much better for it. And I feel I feel like now that this record, if it has any if I had any wish for it, it'd be like maybe it can do the same thing for people who listen and sing along. I don't know if you're aware, but I think even earlier this year there was a, a big trend on TikTok of TikTokers singing sea shanties and then I mean, he was just like, Where where is this coming from? Um what what do you make of, of that? Well, if I was actually on the path. I, I have, I'm a folk nerd. Like I actually have the beginnings of a master's in folklore. <laughs> so I, I've always had these sea shanties. I've been always, I know where they look and I've had, I've got a file with 82 in them. And uh, this happened shortly after I started singing these songs in the house loudly. Of course, the kids were out of school so they could hear me, which is why I'm in my man cave up here trying to hide away. Um, but I remember one day my son, who's uh, 16, he came up and he said, Dad, your, your, your music is cool again. You're going to be cool, cool again. Check this out. And he showed me this new f TikTok thing, which I'd heard of but and not seen. And I, I looked at the little screen and I'm like, well, isn't that interesting? You know, these kids are coming together in a difficult time. And they're coming together and they're singing in unison and in harmony actively and in real time using the technology to deliver these sea shanties. Now, they may or may not realize what a sea shanty was intended to do, which is to make things hard things easier or to make hard work more efficient. But they were doing it quite organically. I don't know when they stumbled on this or how, but and I don't think it matters that they understood what the purpose was. 
in reality, though, they were doing what shanties, they were singing shanties and that and and reaping the benefits of what the, and the rewards of what a shanty can bring. And as a father, I felt cool again for a second. And but as as a musician, you know, I mean, I was I didn't really have this record in my head. I was just beginning to sing them and research them and kind of mess with them again. And I saw the shanty talk as a clear sign that maybe this was a good time to give it a go. And uh, it, it was I always look for the peripherals like, is there something else that might make sense here or that indicates I might be heading in the right direction? Because to be honest, I never know. And that was just one of those things that came out of nowhere. And it was I found it encouraging. So, it, you know, it did help. It did help nudge me towards pulling the triggers that made the record Shantyman. It strikes me that I think a lot of this stuff about sea shanties can also bring communities and people together. You know, Newfoundlanders are famously hospitable. Uh, we, we saw that with Come From Away in Gander. Uh, and, it, and it strikes me that sea shanties kind of play into that um, maybe stereotype a little bit. Would you say that there is a sense of community building in, in that type of song or that type of culture yeah again the sea shanties we grew up you know we call them kitchen parties i think great big sea is guilty of inventing that term but they were you know there was the term simply came from we used to in newfoundland you typically do gather in the kitchen because that's where the food is on the stove and that's where the fridge is where the beer is but that's also where the guitars are and that's where the accordions are because it sounds better on you know ceramic <laughs> it's just louder it's it's where we all uh, kind of congregated, but the sea shanty in particular was a was a, is an audience is a natural audience participation song. So it's a community builder in the sense that you're in a you're in a room, and Great Big Sea exploited this to great great effect as well in stadiums and outdoors and wherever we were. But you are a singer. The shanty man delivers the 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 verses, but the the heavy lifting is done by the audience who are expected to come in and join in on the chorus. To get the job done you know and uh it just i think that's a very cool thing about the song uh a sea shanty is not meant to be sung alone it never is it's it's always a call and response it's a it's a it's a kind of a, a loud conversation for lack of a better description so i think that speaks to the newfoundland kind of psyche as well um you you mentioned great big sea and i know a lot of people were very surprised when you left uh, just after the 20th anniversary. And then we sort of, we later found out why um, was how, 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 how tough was that for you to leave that part of your life behind and almost start again? It was really hard. It was the hardest decision I've had to make. And um, I think I made the right one because I'm still here. I'm still alive. And I think I was in danger of self-destructing in that in that environment. I'm uh, an addict, an alcoholic, and um, I've been sober now. I'll be ten years sober November 9th. Congratulations! And yeah, man, I'm. You know, it's. I, I it doesn't feel like that long, but it is, and I guess that means I'm on the right path. But. You know, the last year on the bus, I did make it known to the lads. Like I, I, I told them, I know this is going to be. I know I'm going to head in a different direction here, but at this time, honestly, bands, we'd already kind of fractured our personal lives. We're kind of fraying. Our business model wasn't solid. We didn't agree on many things. We were reaching the end. At least I felt that way. And I was drinking 
way too much to 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 stay in like i couldn't drink enough to stay there like it was just feeding uh my anxieties and stuff so i really it was a really unhealthy place to be and certainly when i decided to go into recovery in in, in an earnest way i was on the bus for the last tour sober and and that really put a strain on anything that was left of our friendships which i regret now because I probably just shouldn't have done that, you know, like I probably I shouldn't have expected the the bus to change. I mean, I was changing, but there was nine other people on that bus and there was 20 years experience on that bus and that wasn't going to change. So I put myself in danger, but I did let them know I gave I told I knew it was this was my last tour. And uh, and for whatever reason, we never did speak about that or tell anyone. And at the end of it, I uh, <laughs> I figured I. I I wanted the fans to know, you know, in the last leg of the tour. So I, I just, I just spit it out on Twitter, and um, and uh, that's when it all kind of came tumbling out. And uh, the the boys in the band didn't like that very much. So I can't, and maybe I shouldn't have done that, but I really thought the fans deserved to know that. And but at the end of the day, I stick by the decision because it was an unhealthy place for me to be, and. Um, you know, if you're an addict in recovery, you have to uh, make these big changes in order to be successful. What does it say about the band, though? You know, we, we always see bands go through phases where, where members leave or they break up. And, you know, maybe one person in the band will have a successful solo career and the others will latch onto another band. But all of you, to a certain extent, have had, you know, you, you've had your Allen's release to, you know, some books and has done some acting and has had a successful career. What does that say to, to the overall skill set of the band that you've all been able to be successful on your own as well as in a group? Well, I, we were all, I think we were successful as a musical group, not because we were musically the best or even close to the best that we were surrounded by in St. John's. There are way better musicians. Uh, but we were all, we were very determined we were the most ambitious and we were willing to we were the ones that were willing to go the furthest to try and achieve what we ultimately did i mean we sold a couple of million records we were single-minded and often bloody-minded in our in our approach so i'm not surprised i mean uh, alan is a smart guy and, and he's he knows what he wants and um and you know, for a long time, we wanted the same thing. And then we didn't. So but I'm not surprised. I mean, he's not a lazy person. He's an, and he's very intelligent. And uh, I think he, you know, he, he wanted to stick to that vision of things. He, he wanted to do a bunch of stuff. He wanted to do a lot more Alan and fair, fair play to him. But it didn't at the end of the day and before the last tour, it was already a strain on the band. And so far as we really didn't have access to his to him as much as we had before. So the writing was on the wall. If their lead singer is not available to make a record, then you're not going to make a record. <laughs> you know, yeah. if he's not going to available to do a tour, you know, then we're not going to do a tour. Yeah. Um, so it just became untenable. But, you know, more power to him. He's doing what he wants to do, and, and, and I am too. So that's probably a good – that's probably a, the best-case scenario. You know, and, and, and I know, you know, in, in the decades since your sobriety and recovery, you've – you know, been doing a lot more public speaking about addiction and, 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 and mental health. Would you, would you consider yourself an activist in that regard? I mean, that, that, had, that, I think that kind of a very 
specific meaning that that can that can turn a lot of people away but i mean it, it, how would you describe what you do in that sense um yeah that's a good question what i do is i share my truth and my story but i do it using songs and i believe that uh, people drink and use drugs for reasons and in my case i was sexually abused by my catholic priest when i was a teenager and I had to go and unwrap all this, and, and this was a secret I kept and used drugs and alcohol to, to, to cover up the pain of that and the shame of that for 35 years, you know. And uh, so <clears throat> I spent a lot of time working through that when I sobered up. And again, the Great Big Sea Bus wasn't a good place for this kind of stuff to be dealt with. So, um, but I had to get away. When I found the space, I started to un unpack all this stuff and do the hard work. But like anything, you know, it's that's the essential and that people ask me why, how I'm still sober. And it's it's because I was willing to go there. Ultimately, it took me a long time to get there. But if you don't acknowledge the truth. Um, you will not solve the problem. You know, you, you have to acknowledge a problem before you can deal with it. And, you know, I spend a lot of a lot of time and effort not not looking at that. So what I do is I share, I try to share very authentically and honestly my what as what I've lived through with people, and I'm very careful to, re, to stay away from hashtag mental health and stuff. Like it's I'm not interested in that. There's an an awful lot of that going on. That's this. It's become a very cool thing to brand with, and uh, again, all this stuff, all that creates more noise and hurts the cause. When people are suffering and when people need help, then it's not the time to sell something. It's the time to help them. So I try to walk that path as much as possible, and I do it in what I call a musical keynote. I stand there with my guitar, and I'll tell people, it, you know, it might be something very difficult to hear. And then I'll sing the song that kind of helped me get through that time. And um, that's the path that I've found myself on. I, I still do some concerts, but I'm far more interested in in doing things that's very purpose driven. And um, it helps me immensely. This sharing that I go through, that's that's my meeting. You know, I'm not part of any program, but that's my meeting. And during COVID, I really felt like, you know, in, in the absence of those gatherings, I felt the first real threat to my uh, my sobriety, like, and I really had was whoa, well, I was, wasn't expecting that, but so it, you know we, we learn and we we use what we had and um, and hopefully we'll and I know I um, I've lost so many friends, so I'm grateful that that I'm still here, but we always have to be vigilant and and uh, and stay on top of this on our, on our own mental health and for our well being. You know that's more important than anything else. So I guess it's a lot to unpack. It's a lot. I do say a lot and I don't keep it simple anymore. I don't, I'm not the, uh, you know, lucky bastard or whatever, <laughs> whatever branding we great big C was the, Hey, you're all, you're all right. I'm okay. Let's have a drink. It's never about that. It's, I'm not drawn to that in any way. I'm drawn to something far more important. And if I do have regrets about great big C's, we had, we had such a huge platform and we did, we, we really said very little that meant very much. The the first time that you actually came out and told your truth about your you know your your addiction and, and and your past abuse, what was that moment like for you? 
That was at the London Recovery Breakfast, and um, back in 2014. Yep, very early on, and I it happened because a man, Polly O'Burn, actually introduced me, and I didn't know Polly. We're good friends now, but he introduced me, and he he got up and he spoke. He just talked for five minutes, and in that five minutes, he basically just said. I'm an addict, and I'm an addict because this happened. I know he was sexually assaulted by his hockey coach. And I was just blown away. There was real power in what he was doing. There was vulnerability, but he, I couldn't believe he, he said all this truth this very, very quickly and clearly and sincerely. And he didn't explode. He didn't, you know, catch fire all. And he just came back to the table, and he... He actually seemed to be in a better place because of it. So I saw someone do that live in front of me and survive it and come out stronger. And I was like, so that encouraged, that's that's why I did it. And that's why I do what I do because when people see it done, something when people see something difficult done, they start to understand that, well, maybe I can do that. And I believe most people can. I believe all people can when they're ready. And uh, I guess I was just ready that day, and it made the difference. It opened the gates for me. I don't think I'd be sober today if I hadn't faced that. I got up, and I just spilled my beans. Like, that was it. I'm telling the truth. I'm done. And uh, I walked away from that feeling on it a hell of a lot lighter. You know, it, it, it can be a fine line for artists sometimes speaking out, you know, like wh whether it's politics or causes, you know, they'll get – criticized by you know people with opposing political beliefs for speaking out but then they'll get criticized by people who share their beliefs for not speaking out um you know as as somebody in the public eye how how do you balance that with, with the need to tell your story i just you know i think everyone has i don't speak for anyone else i never do i just speak for me and i just I try to leave nothing behind. Like there's a cliche, leave it all on the stage. Well, I literally do that every every time I'm on the stage. I I've learned to take advantage of it and to appreciate those those valuable times. Um, so I never hold anything back, and I just um, I, you know you just got to leave people for survivors of sexual abuse. You need to leave that space is crucial. Um, the, the dealing with truth is not something we should comment to. We can speak to anyone else's, you know what I mean? It's just like that, uh, that's entirely a personal thing. Uh, but I do know it helps when, when people are able to watch someone like myself who's, who has survived it, you know, I think that makes the, a, a huge difference. But, you know, we have to be, we have to believe survivors and we have to, uh, you know, there's a certain amount, people drink and use drugs for reasons, and there's a certain amount of stigma associated with addiction still. We seem to be moving in the right direction. Um, I'm certainly not ashamed of my past because I've managed to overcome it. But, you know, if anyone's listening out there, you know, a little compassion can go a long way. Just remember, it's not accidental. It's not deliberate. It's, it's, it's usually because of a trauma something terrible that has happened. So I hope that, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing that I would say. These are the things that I think are important to say uh, without, without judgment and without speaking for anyone else. 
how do you find in i guess in terms of pressure and approach doing a solo act rather as opposed to being a part of the band because when it's when you're playing by yourself it's just you as opposed to the band where there's there's other people you can lean on if you have to there's other people you can hide behind <laughs> when you make a mistake and you can look at the bass player as if it was his fault but uh no it's a very vulnerable position i i like it it's almost like a tightrope because you are fairly naked up there when it's just me and my boron and my guitar and um i don't know i mean you're not you're also not dependent on anybody there's a lot of freedom but the freedom you know it's there's a lot of freedom to fail too so and i don't chain myself great big c was chained to a set list the same one for uh for 20 years pretty much <laughs> so at the end of it i couldn't drink enough to sing it again but i don't i'm very careful not to do that i'm i try to be very present and um i didn't say much i mean alan was a great uh front man and he still is but you know when you're on stage with a guy like that who really wants that attention it's really people often ask like why didn't you, you say so much now and i do share so much in my in my concerts and my keynotes i'm very open and i say a lot and, um, you know, they're like, well, you never said anything for 20 years. <laughs> it's like, yeah, well, I was, I drank a lot. Plus, I mean, Alan could say it all. So it didn't matter, you know, yeah. and we didn't really say much in general, but I, uh, I'm able to, what I lack, what I, what I'm not able to do with sonically with just a guitar and a boron, I'm able to, I think, bring more to whatever, whatever it is that I do, whether it's a show or a keynote, whatever you want to call it it is very present and people know that i'm putting myself at risk of failure and they kind of get drawn into the riskiness of it they know there's no safety net for me and uh, it's like <laughs> what's going to happen like i can honestly say i don't know either yeah. but I, I believe that i've finally found my true voice and i think i've delivered some of the best entertainment i've ever i've ever uh, done before because it means more we um we we see a lot of musicians expand into other areas like acting or um you know maybe maybe writing a memoir are either of those two things in your future at all yeah i just wrote a book with my wife uh it actually released at the beginning of COVID. it's called one good reason and it's our story <clears throat> it's a it's a book about well it started out my story i guess it was my how I, from my life story, how I was in and out of music and, you know, how I dealt with my addiction and not, and, and how I finally came out of it. And I wrote this book over the period of a couple of years. And when we got to the end of that, I felt like there was something missing and I spoke to Andre about it, who's my, you know, um, loyalist companion and deepest critic, my wife. And she had been keeping a, a journal in real time while many in, during, like during the, the course of these events were actually happening. And, you know, as a drunk and an addict, I've forgotten a lot of details. And a lot of them, they didn't bring out the best in me. They didn't make me out to be a, a really particularly nicer person or anything. But they told a real truth. The, this, they told the truth of the person who is probably most affected by the addict, which is your wife or your kids. And that became really powerful. 
Again, it didn't portray me in the most positive light, but I thought it was important. And then so we combined her journals with my history of my my story and um, and recovery. And it just made for a very more much more powerful and impactful read. So that's the book. It's called One Good Reason, and it includes all the lyrics of the songs that I wrote through my recovery, which started with the Help Yourself record um, produced by Joel Plaskett, actually. So it's an it's a powerful and impactful read. It's it was on the bestseller list in Canada for three weeks, so we're pretty proud of it. So that's there. It's available on our website, SeanMcCannSings.com. Um, you know, I think when when people talk about addicts and and recovery, they they always focus on the person who's going through that experience. But how how important and 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 what kind of person does it take to stick beside a person that is going through addiction and recovery you know how, how much has Andrea meant to you through all of this she uh you know I make I often joke about it people say how did you finally quit drinking I mean I, I don't think there was anyone who was tempted more than I was we as Great Big C were a party band we were expected to drink and encouraged to drink we were surrounded by it it was never a taboo or anything it was never a question about that might be too much <laughs> You know, our job was to make every night Saturday night. And um, so, you know, when people say, how did you finally, you know, give it up? And I always say I embraced my higher power. And when I say that, I'm like, yeah, but I'm talking about Andrea <laughs> because she gave me this ultimatum, you know, and um, she made it quite clear that if I didn't stop, I would lose her and effectively my family and my kids. So that was the kind of, that was a very brave thing for her to say to a guy like me. And uh, it took a lot of courage. And, you know, she gave me one last chance and I knew she was serious. And it, so that made that decision for her to do, to give me that ultimatum, that was necessary and very difficult, but it made all the difference. And again, it was fair, it was a courageous thing to do. And it is a courageous thing to do to, uh, to tackle an addiction and you know and it's very important when addicts I think become successful it's, it's usually because they start to see the impact that they're having on the lives of the people they love the most and then that becomes bigger than the addiction so I credit her with that I think that I was lucky very lucky I'm, and, and uh, not every addict has that person in their lives so it's, it's it becomes a harder task so I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here without her. Not today, no. Where do you think we are in society in terms of the conversations we're having now about mental health or, or, or trauma, or, you know, we're seeing, you know, the, the Me Too movement, for example, and how that's expanded and morphed and, you know, the, the Catholic church role in residential schools and even in, in, in secular schools as well. It, you know, the floodgates are sort of now open. Uh, uh, as someone who w was a victim of, of that system, what do you, what do you make, how much progress do you think we've made in, in addressing these systemic issues? I think there's, you know, there's, there's progress being made, but there's an awful lot of lip service and, and phony baloney branding that goes with this that doesn't help. It hurts because it brings it, it, it brings a very serious 
these very serious issues and when politicians like rub themselves up against it and 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 say cool shit to say and they don't mean it it does way more damage than if they just shut up and stayed out of it and uh i mean we just saw a prime example with uh, our prime minister who decided to take a vacation on the national day for truth and reconciliation i mean it was just such an avoidable thing and a huge hurtful thing to do and here's a guy who talks a big talk you know and and you know at the end of the day can set us back a lot and i see that a lot in the industry of mental health now and if i've banged my head against the wall i see a lot of that and i think that that just dilutes the importance of these issues um companies and people are just very quick to uh to want their brand associated with it and they throw money at it but it, it's it's not about money it's not about branding it's about person-to-person -person contact and it's about doing the work so there's a lot of noise yeah. and I wish it wasn't that. So what, what people see as an improvement, and I think what your question kind of gets into, there has been an awful lot of talk, like Bell Let's Talk for is a great example, but it's an awful lot of noise. And in my opinion and in my experience, that's all it is. A lot of it is. And I wish there was a, a lot more practical stuff being done, useful stuff. Um, you know, and... Uh, the, and yes, it's better than it was, maybe. But I mean, that's the danger I foresee. It's like, let's keep it real here. Like, come on. And it seems like one step forward, two steps back. Uh, and I just don't know what, what it is about us as humans that insists on <sighs> trivializing things that are so, so important to deal with. You know, I know, I know my union is starting to cover uh, mental health counseling therapy under, the, you know, under, under their health coverage plan. Um, is, is that something that you think is, is necessary and doable, you know, w within the near future is having healthcare plans that cover, you know, not only like doctor visits and, and stuff like that, but, but mental health as well. Yeah. I think that that the, your mind and your, your, what we are as humans are a mind and a body. And we're, we are at the point now where doctors are starting to admit you know, that they don't know the mind part unless they're psychiatrists or whatever. But that's really hard. And there are certain skills that counselors and uh, therapists have over time experienced. They can be very practically helpful, especially when they're being honest with people. And, and people generally want a safe place. And if they don't have it in the form of their wife or their spouse or whatever, or their friends, they need a place to be able to start to have these meaningful conversations. And in the past, I mean, just if you just relied on medicine, physical medicine, I mean, in the past couple of decades, there's been an overprescription of opioids and uh, anti-anxiety pills just to deal with these things, right? Because again, you know, and, and there's a place for that, I think, uh, certainly for those type of anti-anxiety medications, but they, they end up in their own, forming their own pandemics and their own problems, epidemics, I should say. And, um, you know, we end up creating these new problems by not dealing to doing the hard work. I mean, let's, and it takes, a, I mean, sometimes it takes a counselor and a therapist or someone in a safe place, a professional to sit down and get to the truth. Cause I don't think you can, you, you can treat the symptoms, but you don't cure yourself unless you really do that, that digging, you know, 
And I think that's a role, a practical role that these professionals can play. And that's not a doctor. That's not what doctors do. They're trained to take us apart and put us back together again physically. So I appreciate, I applaud your union. I think that's the right thing to do because denying that there is a mental health problem, especially in the digital age, and I imagine more especially after this social isolation experiment called COVID-19 is over, I think the demand on our, you know, I think people are going to, we're going to feel this for a while yeah. in this, as a society in, in that in the mental health way. And so I think we need an army of therapists or, you know, um, real, com real conversations. Again, I don't, I think there's a real danger of it being co-opted and, and branded in a, in a negative way, but people need to know and need to be supplied with safe places so they can have these necessary, difficult conversations about why they're why they're addicted about what happened do you, do you find it slightly ironic that you know a lot of these people say oh you know we have this epidemic with opioids or you know there's a mental health crisis we need to take this and yet and some of those same people then don't trust the information that they're getting about vaccines that's an unfortunate symptom i think of 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 the social media factor here and that plays into digital addiction which is a real thing i mean that's what we're, we're all addicted to our phones now i don't know anyone who's not i really don't and uh, if you if you don't think you are just ask yourself how many hours not minutes but hours a day do you spend on social media scrolling you know uh, it's not just kids on video games it's everybody it's so prevalent and it's it doesn't make us feel better and it's and we know that it's bad for our mental health and we and but you know we don't do much about that um i i think that there's going to be a lot of fallout there and one of the big things is that one of the things that i, I mean I, it, we saw it in the american elections it became a thing but truth which i believe is extremely important to recovery never before has truth become such a moving target in real time and in our lives every second of every day it's been interpreted it's been polarizing it's been but facts you know they tend to be i i, I was really taken aback when i think someone who worked for donald trump came on and said um that's uh that's your interpretation of the truth and it was like, what, what are the facts here? And you'll see like, and our, our own media, CBC, CTV, you know, you kind of got to watch them all and, and kind of make up your own mind. But there's been a real, a real kind of run on, run on the truth here. And um, I think that just really makes it hard. I, I think that's why we're having such, there's such issues getting people to get vaccinated. And uh, I mean, politicians do it all the time. So the net effect to society is very negative. When truth becomes a moving target, you know, it matters. So if it's open for interpretation and it can be whatever the narrative is, whoever has the most might will dictate what the narrative is. Well, that's why we don't know about residential schools. I never heard about it until Gord Downey told me. You know, and I'm a 54-year-old white guy. But, you know, at some point you think I would have been taught that in school? Because that's the truth, right? Yeah. That's our history. And the omission of that, that's a deliberate thing. And how much damage did that do? I mean, we're starting to count graves now, but 150,000 children? 
like these are hard things to face but we you know we don't improve we don't we don't learn from from them if we just don't if we don't accept them um i think i don't know man i see this so much and it drives me crazy it's like this um this this desire to control the narrative you know and uh and, and and establish what the truth is regardless of what it really is can only be it can only end badly for all of us on on that note then you know because it, it does seem we are becoming increasingly divided or or at least segregated in, in certain ways how much can music heal and bring us together irrespective of our politics or our beliefs music is always binding it, it it does heal whereas anger never wants to heal anger only wants to hurt and destroy and there's only one antidote for for anger and that's love that's the only thing that works against it so if you think about it where we are now as a society and again i I've been kind of kicking social media, but you can see it play out there. And, and I believe that, it, you know, this was a foreseeable thing in some ways. And, and even now, if we admit it, then we shouldn't be, be able to control Facebook and legislate that they can't be this way. We have the power. It's we only we give this this power to people. We're not powerless to change this this social media experiment that was supposed to bring us all together. Well, now we know that the reality reality is it's that it's it's a source of misinformation and it has divided us and we see the anger tearing our society apart and very, and there's consequences it's not just we disagree now we disagree about something as important as a vac as a as a vaccination that can that can you know change the course of a pandemic now there's conse real time consequences to life and death consequences yeah. to uh, to this uh, truth manipulation so i think um you know what's what's what we what we don't see very much on the internet is love and uh i think that music is the language of that like i think it's still something that what's a quote from bob marley when hit me with the music when you hit me with music i feel no pain so i think music can be the right now so we're polarized and I believe compassion is the only way to bring that back together. There's no sense in being judgmental and angry at someone who's anti-vax vaccine because they're afraid, because they're afraid because they've been misinformed, because our governments have allowed that to happen. And I have compassion for that, for those people. And we have to find a way to reassure those people. They're afraid. If someone's afraid of something, you can't make them do it. That's just going to make them more afraid. Yeah. So we have to find a way, you know, and maybe music is that way. Music for me was always strong medicine. If it wasn't for music, you know, these records and songs I wrote about recovery, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here, you know, and I think it's got a role to play probably more so now than ever. And I hope shanties, you know, bring it all back to the shanties. I think, I think they can really help. Yeah, I, I, you know, it, it's, it, it's, I find it interesting because, you know, shanties are so in, you're embedded in the folk music culture and Fogan is, you know, vice versa. But it strikes me that there is something a little bit punk about shanties and, you know, 
that the, the whole, I guess, attitude and, and ethos behind him. Do you, do you find a relationship at all between folk music and punk music? Yeah, I do. I mean, the, <laughs> the punk punk music of the 70s and 80s, that, that'll be the folk music of the next generation, really. I mean, folk music is music of the people, and it usually comes out of desperate times. And that's what punk is. It was a reaction. And the sea shanties, you know, it was funny you mentioned that because the thing about the shanty talk that I didn't like was that it was such an antiseptic, clean, uh, you know, very weird because these young voices were singing these really old songs very perfectly and they were they were like auto-tuned. And, but the shanty was sung by sailors on ships. It was, you know, as a, as a folkloric researcher, I can tell you, and I had to rewrite a lot of these lyrics, most shanties are very, very use very colorful language to and and they're they're not uh, these clean antiseptic they're very dirty and they were they were the voice of the oppressed because these sailors were press ganged into business um they were essentially slaves they had no choice they were beaten if they didn't do their work and punished severely and killed and uh but the song the singing of shanties that's where they had their little bit of freedom because the captain didn't care what they said in those shanties about the king or the queen as long as they got the work done. So, you know, if you go back historically, a lot of the lyrics are, they say a lot. They, they use their voice there insofar as they could. So I do believe that, um, that the shanty was the punk rock of 1850, <laughs> for, for lack of a better description. What do you make of how technology has changed music you know now rather than just having a guitar on stage you know you've got the mumble rappers or you've got you know people singing with auto-tunes you've got edm which doesn't even have any lyrics you know everything can just be made from a computer by you know someone in in their basement yeah i think and I don't want to sound like a grandpa here, but I, I think I am. My kids call me a boomer, which is not true. But, you know, they, they say because I'm not, I don't know how to use TikTok. I don't, I, I do learn as much as I, you know, I learned how to use logic and record demos and make records. But I think technologies, you know, it's, I don't think we should surrender to it because we do have the ability as humans right now, anyway, to control it for now. Um. But I do think that what was attractive to me or most attractive about music is it it's the thing that comes out of human beings, especially the voice. It's what we can do with our bodies and our minds. And, you know, but it, there's something very unquantifiable about music. Uh, if, if there is a soul, I think it's there's that like if I have a religion at all, it's music because it, it allows me to deal with things that I don't understand. You know, there's. And I think that's what religion's job is to make us feel better about the things we don't control, like death and, you know, those hard things that people really don't. Why? I don't know. It's just, but music is something that gives us the, the toolkit to deal with that kind of stuff. But as far as the auto tuning and I do hear what I don't hear, what I miss about modern music. And by that, I mean what my kids t listen to and they're exposed to everything. So they have a chance, but it's the absence of the human sounds like the, there's so many cool digital sounds and I go down that wormhole occasionally I use the, you know samples to make demos but then I'm very quick to replace them with humans because to me it's a very it's it's 
the voice and the playing of instruments live face to face in a, in a, if you're in a room with a, a person playing a piano or a guitar you know it's amazing it's there because the air is is moving like the strumming of of strings and beating of drums and hitting of keys and voice you're pushing air around and the digital samples of those you know the, the things that mimic those things they don't do they don't do that in the same way they, they, they can't do that yet. Maybe they will, but I don't know. I miss that about that. I think that music is something that we have. I think we're the only animal that can kind of really make it. You know, no offense to the wolves and the birds. <laughs> um, you, you, know, you mentioned at the, at the top, you worked on this album with Hoxie Workman, Gordy Johnson, uh, two heavyweights. Um, I've gotten a chance to talk with Hox, Hoxley. Um, last year having a team like that uh to help you bring your vision to life what 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 did those two mean to this project they were essential i mean i i i made the record and there's a there's a cool indie version of this record where i play all the instruments right and and um and the thing was i'd made like 16 records so i kind of know from experience like okay and I was going to release it as my pandemic project, what I did to keep from going crazy. And there is still that version of this, but it was when I finished it, I'm like, there's an energy in this. This is a real record. Like I would be doing this a disservice. And I, I, my motto for this project is Shantyman, a servant to the song. And that's what the Shantyman is. And I'm like, I, if I release this, in this in this state which is kind of cool and indian vibey it's not reaching these this this album's potential so i knew i had to spend money then and uh i reached out to hoxley right away because he's i know he can play all I, you know he can play it all he can he played bass and drums he played electric guitar all kinds of weird things too that he just threw on there and i knew he would do it without direction i mean he's i've worked with him before just guys like that you don't try to tell them what to do He's going to do what he's going to do. You buy into that. And he sent it all back and he just nailed it. Like it was incredible. It was uh, wow. So that's cool. And then I knew I needed fiddle. So I got JP Cormier, who's not a traditional fiddler. He's not even, he's, that's not even his main instrument, but I just like the way he plays because he doesn't play like everyone else. That turned out to be the right call. He just threw his stuff on there. You know, day later it was all there. Okay. That was amazing. That was two two good luck two lucky things in a row. Like we got, and they were both available and interested. Then I had this really big record, and I'm like, well, I'll just mix it now. And and then I'm like, wait now, who's better? I I don't really I've never really mixed a record before, but who do I who can really blow this up and um, who can make this who can who can bring this energy and make it take it all the way to eleven. And the obvious choice there was Gordy. So, I mean, I'd never, uh, I'd actually tried to get Gordy to produce a Great Big C record. Hawksley actually did produce one before. And we, we almost killed the poor fellow. <laughs> but he survived it. But Gordy, I, I wanted him, I always loved Big Sugar. And uh, the love these arrangements. I love reggae. I love hard rock and roll. It was just a great band. And they work with, we did a lot of live shows with them. So I, 
talked to the boys in the band about getting them to produce a record, and they were like, eh, I don't know. And I'm like, well, let's, let's talk to him and see what he would do. And we sat down in a bar in St. John's. He was in town, and we kind of said, listen, we're thinking about, we've got these new songs. What do you think, what would you do if you, if you had the opportunity to produce the next Great Big C record? <laughs> and he looked at me, and he said, um, what's that thing you play? What's that drum thingy? You're in one hand. I'm like, that's a boron. He said, I'd take that drum boron-y thingy and you know, I'd make it loud as fuck. <laughs> like, that's great. And as, as happy as I was to hear that, this, of course, was poison in the ears of the lads. And rightly so, because the last thing they wanted was for that, that thing to be this loudest thing in the record. And uh, I tell this is, is it was it was hilarious because I could see and he could tell right away I just lost the gig. <laughs> it's not going to happen because I am outvoted, you know, two to one yeah. now. That's not happening. I could tell you that. Uh, and it was hilarious. But, you know, but now I saw this as an opportunity. And I can tell you that the boron in the, on this, the shanty man is as loud as fuck. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> <laughs> I think at one point I asked him, I thought one of the guitars was too loud, like a little bit. And I said, Gordy, can you? I think that might be it. Can you turn that down like 2 dB? And he said, no, I can't. No, I can't do that. I tell you what I'll do, Sean. I'll turn everything else up, <laughs> which is okay, which is what he did. And, uh, you know, I, I just think that that guy, all those people, Hoxley and JP and Gordy, like they're just going to they did what they were going to do. They showed up. They dug what they dug the songs. They got invested in it. They threw themselves into this, and uh, they they really kicked it up. And I got lucky. I'm very grateful for for you know that those happy accidents. You know, we never we only had a couple of FaceTime conversations. We never we never got in the studio together. Not once. It's amazing. You you you, you mentioned the bar and and I've always loved that instrument. It got me into drumming when I was a kid. Um, you know, it, I, it was such a signature, I think, of, of Great Big C in a lot of ways. Um, wh what do you like about that instrument, especially as it relates to sort of the, the maritime folk style? Well, it's interesting you say it got you into drumming. It got me out because I saw like <laughs> I could... I can pretty much do what a kit can do with just this one little thing. And I don't, I can fit it and go in a little bag and it goes over my shoulder and goes in a carry on on a plane. And I don't have the, the labor that drummers dragging their stuff around. Right. It was literally laziness that motivated me to, uh, to invest time in learning how to play that weird little thingy as Gordy calls it, but it does have a huge range sonically. And, uh, and it sounds to me what I, I just love the sound. It's like, a mix between a kick and tom and i got the little bit of click on the hi-hats and stuff but it really is like that real cool like hand drum indigenous sounding thing it's a heartbeat is what it is i think that's what and it's very organic it's a very simple instrument you know and i just for me it was always the greatest thing and i uh, there was good boron players in st john's and they they just were kind of cantankerous. I've learned that boron players, and I'm just as contrary as most of them, but I, I, um, you know, we're all we're a bit of a crazy bunch. And I, I was 19, and I was I went to Ireland, and I met with a guy named Robbie Whalen at uh, O'Donoghue's Pub, which is where the Dubliners used to play. And you know, for a couple of pints of Guinness, he he 
gave me some real good pointers. And it was a game changer. I came back and I could play pretty good, you know, and uh, it did change the band. Like it really did give us this power. I was able to stand up and play the boron, uh, which most people never get around to because it's physically demanding. But I knew it, uh, and we never had a drummer, you know, honestly, we never had a drummer for the first 10 years. We never got a drummer till like Sea of No, after the Sea of No Cares record was released, which was our fifth or sixth record, which is incredible how far we got. We were doing hockey rinks. We were playing to like 20,000 people without a drummer. I remember opening up for the hip for the first time and they're like, who are you? <laughs> what are you going to do? But we, you know, we used to get that boron and we, live we'd always make it loud as fuck so it was it was boom right i don't know if you ever got to see us but yeah yeah i i saw you i well i i seen you a few times and saw you a lot when i was younger you know we were we not that we're from the maritimes but i grew up on like you know i, I remember seeing you and like the chieftains when you did lukey's boat and yep. like people like ashley and the Rankins and everything else, just like any Eastern music. And then the last time I saw you was in Vancouver at the, uh, I think it was the Queen Elizabeth on your 20th year, just before. Um, the end, Yeah, the last tour. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, I guess, yeah. So the Celtic, there was a Celtic revival there uh, for a while. It was, Toronto was signing Celtic. There was, well, I don't even know why, but it, it, lucky for us, there it was first, it was the Rankins and then it was Ashley. And I think then it was us. Well, there was a band called the Irish Descendants that was before us. They were signed, but it was all the labels wanted a piece of that action, you know? Yeah. I can't remember what the, the why. It was definitely, you know, it was weird for us because in Newfoundland, it was always the most popular music, still is, you know? But that caught on. And uh, it was weird because at the time, what was huge was grunge. And uh, it was pretty heavy stuff. And I liked Nirvana and we dressed as, you know, we, we, we wore all the, the, the grunge. We were all kind of sloppy and lumberjacked out and the, had the hair and all that stuff. But we were playing this very much happy music. It wasn't heavy at all. It was like the anti-grunge in some ways. And I think what Great Big Sea was, we, what was weird about us, we were all like, I certainly was a punk fan. You know, Joe Strummer was, and Johnny Cash were the guys that I listened to. And we just want, I wanted to be, I wanted to do Newfoundland music, but I wanted to do it with that attitude. So we were, we were kind of folk punk in our approach. We were trashy, sloppy, messy, dirty, like reckless. And uh, we it just, we didn't care. We had, we were fairly fearless and, and we, we wanted, you know, it was aggressive. What they, what was the, there was one ag aggressive folk. We were, we were, that's how they described us. We were spooky, <laughs> but we were really aggressively so. <laughs> yeah. So, so there was an energy that we all really like, it was all about the energy, not so much the skills, because yeah. it was very, but if you, like, if you listen to the Joe Strummer stuff in The Clash, like, he was a guy, he was all heart, he was all energy, and he could, he write lyrics and stuff, but he was Joe Strummer, you know, that was, yeah. he's, he's the guy I want to sound like. Well, it, it's interesting that you say aggressive folk, you know, because, you know, that is true. There is a little bit of sort of raw, raw, you know, in, in Great Big Sea. And Ashley, too, I think, is, is another example of that. Um, but then, you know, you you go and play with a band like the Chieftains, who have been around for 50 years and are, you know, have have a, at least a certain amount of, I think, class and yeah. 
respectability. <laughs> yeah, but you know, just I th I think in in a way that's different than sort of the the Celtic revival that 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 came out of this country. Um, do you remember anything about that? And did 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 Patty and and the boys, I guess, teach you anything in that regard? Yeah, well, they, they we did have a lot of respect for them. Like they were the records my dad listened to, you know, and it was the Chieftains or Buddy Holly, which so I I grew up with those guys and they were more of a tune band like not they weren't a song band so they were uh they always needed singers so that's how we ended up on the tour we could sing and they they could play the tunes which we we weren't very good at that but we could sing and um it was interesting you know it was an honor to be with them but what, what i found most interesting i wasn't drawn to the music i knew what it was and i was more interested in big sugar than the chieftains but it was a, an honor to to be around them and what i saw was you know, a band who'd been together for 50 odd years. And it was like a glimpse of the future. It was, you know, we were all paying attention to how they behaved towards each other. And it wasn't, they weren't the best of friends or it was very, <laughs> they functioned, but they were in a way like Patty and uh, Patty Maloney and Martin Fay, uh, who were best friends. He was, he's deceased now. Um, he was one of the original fiddle players. So Patty and Martin Fay were in kindergarten together. So they've, they've been friends forever. And uh, Martin was there. These guys were like 75 years old when we were with them. Like that's, that's, they were old then. And um, Patty had given up smoking cigarettes and he was uh, determined that everyone else around him not smoke at the time. This is 20 years ago. So yeah, I think it would have been 70. They're about, they're they're all hitting 70 at the time. And Martin had not quit smoking. And uh so one night um and they were hilarious to watch because of the way they behaved. They were just really funny to watch. It was like all these little old guys going around poking at each other, you know. And so you weren't allowed to smoke anywhere. And we all and most of us smoked cigarettes at the time, but we weren't allowed to smoke anywhere near Patty. It was just a thing on the road. It was the, there was one thing that he really didn't want that would really set him off. But Martin was a chain smoker, and it was really difficult for him to get get far enough away from Patty, who always complained about the secondhand smoke. So one night in the, we were in the pub all night. Certainly Martin was. And Patty retired early and was in. He's gone to his room, and uh, I was coming up after the bar closed, and I was looking down the hallway. I was about to check. This is in Ireland. Actually, we're shooting the video for Lukey's boat. And I looked down the hall and it was, and I see this little old guy on the ground and it's Martin Fay, and he's smoking a cigarette. He's in the hallway smoking a cigarette. He's down on his hands and his knees and he's blowing the smoke underneath Patty Maloney's door. <laughs> so, so I thought this was brilliant, <laughs> very devious and uh, just hilarious. I mean, I, I just laughed so hard and he's just like, shh. So I'm like, oh, all right, I didn't see it, saw nothing, go in. And the next morning, we're all like hung over, checking out. And, and here's Patty, he's up first. And we, I'm walking down, just trying to, just five minutes late for my van ride or whatever. And here's Patty at the front desk, irate with the house manager and complaining. He's like, I demanded a non-smoking room. <laughs> Why did you put me in a smoking room? My room stinks of tobacco. And just like that is so I've never I don't know what the lesson was there. <laughs> but 
but I think it speaks to like how volatile bands can be. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just, I just, it was hilarious. I just thought that was, I, I couldn't think of that, you know, <laughs> maybe <laughs> if we thought harder about those outlets, we'd still be together. If we did those things to each other, which are kind of funny, right? we'd probably still be together. Maybe, maybe that's what Martin Fay was doing. He was exercising his, uh, his frustration in a, in a, in a non-lethal way. <laughs> you, uh, you, you, you mentioned the fiddle and I think for me, more so than any other instrument or any other style. For me, the fiddle is what is representative of Celtic folk maritime music. I don't know why, for whatever reason, I never played the fiddle, but I would always turn it up when I heard it, you know, whether it was maritimes or even, you know, you're seeing folk metal bands now like Turi Sass use it. And um, people don't realize, I think that Bob, Bob was actually a really good fiddle player. Um, what what is it about the fiddle you think that has that has made it such uh, an emblem and a symbol of that type of music? Um, the fiddle, you know, we weren't known for our our musicianship, and not just Bob, but uh, none of us were really good. Like if you're with if you're around a Patty Maloney or a Martin Fay. That's not what we were about. So instrumentally, we weren't strong at all. Like Ashley was great. Natalie McMaster was great. Uh, but that wasn't, we were great singers and we had this energy. Um, but fiddle, like, I don't really know. I've been around great fiddlers. Um, and it is a thing. Newfoundland is more accordion. Like Bob was definitely stronger on accordion than fiddle. And accordion was more, there was far more accordion players than fiddle players. And I'm not even sure why, but I'm sure there is a story. But there is something about it. And I had a choice when I made Shantyman. Was it going to be a fiddle? I mean, I played tin whistles and stuff, but was it going to be a fiddle or was it going to be an accordion or was it going to be bagpipes? Was it going to be a mixture of all of them? Um, but for me, it was like, there's like, and I think JP Cormier, like he's a rare, like he's an instrumentalist. I don't know if you ever listened to his stuff. If you haven't, you should check it out. Here's a guy who's a gun, like he's able to play banjo, guitar, mandolin, and fiddle at a level that's like superhuman. Um, and the only direction was I gave to him was I don't want it to sound Cape Breton-y. I don't want it to sound Newfoundland-y or Atlantic Canada E. I want this color, but I want it to be um, unchained. I don't want it to be identifiable is what I said to him. And he came back with this mixture of all those things, plus this Appalachian, uh, you know, immigrant kind of fiddle sound that came out very American fiddle sounding. And as it turns out, he's fluent in that too. So I think that there's real power in the right hands with that kind of thing. But uh, there's very few people I would, having worked with JP Cormier, I don't think I'd go anywhere else ever again <laughs> with fiddle. I would, if Martin Fay was still alive, I'd definitely go, I'd follow him wherever he went after the bar closed though, just to see what he would do. Yeah, no, I actually, I, I grew up with a couple of good friends that had their siblings and um, they ended up, playing in a band they've toured with Ashley for many years and she's a she's a really good uh fiddle player still to this day so oh, yeah. who's that uh Christina and Quinn Bashand um they they're from out here in Victoria um 
I think I might, I might have met them. Yeah. So Quinn ago. is now like 26 and he was at Berkeley College of Music in Boston. So he's um, gone. Yeah. Uh, and he, he's doing actually like, uh, he's doing a jazz band now called Brishin. Uh, he also plays like claw hammer banjo. Um, but they, they played a lot with Ashley, Adrian Dolan, uh, those kind of people, uh, Q, um, they are now, or they're back living here. They, they split up as a band a couple years ago. They just, you know, they were siblings. They just needed to do their own thing. Right. Um, but yeah, Q had a, had a good folk scene. As far as I recall, there used to be good, um, a very like trad kind of, yeah. It was good, good, good scene well, there for that. We were well received there. I know that very quickly. D- Daniel Lapp uh, has a fiddle school here. Um, he's one of the biggest. And uh, yeah, I remember like Great Big CEO would always play either McPherson or the Royal. Um, yeah, no, we were. Uh, I remember our first shows there, and uh, it was really well attended. It was one of the first ones. Was this outdoor thing we did. Yeah. But just uh, something about yeah, Victoria was very kind of. I ready for great big C and folk music, acoustic music. Anyway. Well, part of it, I think is, you know, we, we are an Island. So, you know, there is that Island mentality. Um, but also, you know, back in the sixties and seventies, Victoria and the Gulf islands were populated by a lot of draft dodgers um, from, from the Vietnam war. And so I think they brought that ethos with them. That's a little more folk, a little more hippie. So I think maybe that's part of the reason why, um great big yeah, i just there. noticed that on the ground there was yeah it was in the pubs and uh of course we were in the pubs so <laughs> had no trouble making friends there um well if you said you were you were in in the pubs in victoria do you do you have a, a favorite um drinking or a, a favorite establishment that you went to in victoria <laughs> uh i remember one not that it was my favorite it wasn't but i remember the name the stinky wink stinky wicket sticky wicket Sticky. That's not the stinky. The sticky wicket. Yeah, that's that's a quite legendary pub. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't very music friendly, but it was. Um, I remember the name, but you know, I don't remember that much more. Um, I do remember like where were they? Just <laughs> we went to all of them. I yeah. That. Um, being from Newfoundland, or you being from Newfoundland, I got to ask you about the food because they do have it's quite distinct food over there. Um best place to get cod tongue in newfoundland honestly like don't why <laughs> really okay you, all right <laughs> it's like i'm not a fan but if i i think you i think it'd be if you can get them fresh and there's someone's mom who's willing to make them and use like the fat pork it's essentially it's okay. not the it's not the part of the fish it's like a that's a very gelatinous kind of it's like eating a jellyfish Okay. You fry it. You fry it really hard in like a salt fat pork. So it's fat pork that's been salted. So it's fried. It's like deep fried in a pan in grease. But it tastes essentially once that happens, it tastes like uh, really salty bacon. Okay. I don't know. I was never a fan. I mean, take a lot of rollades and stuff if you're going to go there. <laughs> well, uh, so I would. Yeah. I mean. Okay. It- it, it, it's funny because when I, 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 I talked to Alan about eight years ago and he, he raved about this place that I think is run by a relative of Alan Hocko or something, um, the actor. Uh, so who did um, Republic of Doyle on CBC? Oh, that guy. Yeah. No, I don't yeah. know those guys very well. But uh, yeah, so it, it's interesting. Um, 
so then, all right, what, what would you, what for you, what is the best traditional Newfoundland dish? Uh, I don't know. It's, um, I think that most, they have a thing called Jigs Dinner, like Sunday dinner, which is salt beef and potatoes and cabbage. I'm, I'm Irish, like I'm seventh generation Ireland. So that was their traditional, it was like root vegetables boiled in a salted beef water. So I would say that. And then of course, like, you know, co fresh codfish is amazing. And, you know, lobster and all those things are you would think they actually would be more readily available. It's hard to find now because the moratorium for the last 20 years. If you're in St. John's, honestly, I'd go to, like, if you want really good fish and chips, there's a place called Leo's that does that really well. Um, but, you know, you, if you if you do go to Newfoundland, you're going to, you're not, if you're a vegetarian, you'll have a hard time. There's not a lot of, most of the food is fairly brown and and. I think in former gen, like my grandfather lived to be 99, and I don't think he ever saw a tomato, you know, or lettuce. But they also lived lives very laboriously, like they did. They were so physically strong and worked so hard that they could burn through the salt and fat. They needed that kind of stuff in their diet. Um, but if you go to St. John's now, you also find uh, some very high end, like the, the food in my lifetime, and I've watched a change from a society that really didn't have much to offer now it's a tourist destination there's all kinds of rock and roll celebrity chefs with restaurants in st john's now you can't go wrong all kinds of different different food yeah and i, I do remember and when i think anthony bourdain did an episode in newfoundland yes, he did, yeah. and, and he loved it he raved about it um, yeah anthony uh yeah we lost one in him i always liked his show yeah. but again a, a town like st john's is a, is a difficult place for an addict <laughs> like <laughs> I'm sure he liked it. Yeah, yeah, no. Nope. <laughs> the biggest party. Uh, I mean, it's the highest bars per capita. In really? North America. Yeah. I mean, it's Canada's New Orleans is what it is. It's like yeah. Vegas. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just, just, if you want to get your party on, that's where you want to get going. Um, it's just as we wrap up here, you know, it's it's been about near, I guess, close to a, close to a decade since you you split with the boys. Um, you know, do you? foresee yourself five, 10, 20 years down the road, any sort of reunion, or do you think that's it? I don't think there will be until there's a, a meaningful conversation as human beings. Like we haven't had those conversations. We haven't at no point other from the time I said, look, I have an, I have a problem. I'm going to do this tour and I'm going to stop because I don't think it's a healthy place for me. We never once spoke about that problem and that hurt. And then even after I came out about, you know, my abuse, that wasn't ever acknowledged or spoken about. So there's a lot for me that uh, if we were friends ever, really, like, we'll have to find that place again. And it has, it has to be sincere. I'm not going to do it for the money. And I know we left a fortune on the table. And... Uh, you know, but money almost killed me. So I, uh, I do miss the money in some ways, but, but I won't, I won't, I won't even tickle that, uh, that possibility unless there's a real meaningful, genuine, uh, productive human conversation. And not by that, I don't mean talking to Alan's manager or Bob's lawyer. So I'm not, 
I'm not open to anything like that until until something meaningful on a human level happens. Uh, and oh, finally, out of all the songs on uh, Shantyman, is there one that's your favorite? Uh, right now, they're all my favorite because because uh, they're still new. I'm not sick of them. I will be sick of them in about six months, or if I ever get to play them live. I'm not <laughs> um, I really like Shantyman's Life. I think that that was. It's funny the two weirdos in the. There's always two. I'm working with Joel. There's always two two of everything. There's kind of every song has its twin if you're into numerology at all. But the two weirdos on this record that are not as shanty, they're, they're more they're more evolved or more of a departure from, and this is an evolved record. I mean, I took huge liberties with lyrics and, you know, writing choruses and the arrangements, very rock and roll, but there's Shanty Man's Life. And then the oldest song, which is actually a child ballad, which we're talking 14th century, uh, it's not really a shanty, but it's definitely ancient. And that's The Bold Fisherman. And I think both those ones have, they're the most evolved. They're the most, they're the bravest arrangements. And uh, so I'm kind of drawn to those two because they're the outliers. I don't know that there'll be the, what there'll be, what the, the meat of the record is. Like, I think the rest of the stuff will resonate with Great Big Sea fans or shanty fans. That's definitely a, all the good stuff is there, high energy and big sing and all that stuff. But I personally, I'm always drawn towards the contrary ones. Well, the album is Shanty Man, uh, and it is it's officially out now. Yes, like people can. Yeah, it's available only on my website, shamancansings.com, and physical or digital uh, download. And I'm not streaming it for at least a year, if ever because I did some research there <laughs> and after uh, after five years of with five solo records on Spotify and Apple Music and all the streamers, I checked out, I just kind of like, you know, you see money trickle in here and there. It was never very much, but I looked at what's the total, what, I've, what have I made in total here? I was trying to assess because yeah. everyone's like, you got to give it away. And of course I'm unfunded. I mean, I paid for all this. I mean, Hoxley yeah. and Gordy and JP are great, but they're not free. And, uh, I just, I wanted to find a way and I don't have a grant or anything. I don't, I haven't got the patience to wait for someone in the government yeah. to judge me for three months to tell me if I'm worthy of. I'm, I'm, the, I'm, the, same way, I'm the same way. I feel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, I'm not going to, it's not going to determine what I do. I'll dig holes for a living if I have to, to make the record. So anyway, I looked at it and I made like 640 bucks on Spotify. Uh, and that's with like almost 90,000 followers. That's with a lot of spins. And I'm like, okay, yeah. well, and I found out that since that, that's actually a lot. <laughs> if, if people in my circle, people who've been around and they're like, the common is, yeah, I only made 150 or whatever. Like that's, that's pretty good. But it's pretty bad when that little over for that amount of material, it's pretty bad when that's all I can earn. And then I am, so I'm like, well, what is a Spotify? Everyone's, well, you gotta put it there, man. Like that'll draw, that'll sell tickets for your tours. People won't pay for it, but they, they might buy your ticket to your shows. And I'm like, well, what show? There's no shows. There's no tour uh, for the foreseeable future. So, okay, that's not a reason for me. It's not going to drive that anywhere very meaningfully. And then I learned that the owner of Spotify, a Swedish guy named Daniel Ek, who was worth about 
three million at the beginning and then started Spotify. He's now worth four point eight billion dollars. And that was it for me. <laughs> like now. Nah. Well, well, and you know what he said? Like, because there was, you know, the, there was a big not like anti-Spotify movement, but you know, pandemic, everything was being questioned, but you know, millionaires and stuff. And he basically said, Oh, well, these people who are complaining should make more records. Like that that yeah, was I know, yeah. I that saw was that too. That was his excuse. Yeah. There's a guy, um, you know, and I think record companies had to bear some of the blame here. We were signed to Warner, Warner Music Canada. And, you know, on, there's two sides of a contract. They've always taken the lion's share, you know, usually 80% of, of, a, of the royalties. And uh, their role, what they're obligated to do legally is to exploit the product, sell it for money, and handle the distribution and selling of the product. And they're also tasked... Legally, they're they're supposed to protect the artist from exploitation from anyone else, and you know what they've chosen to do? They've basically folded. They ran. They they were cowards. They just yeah. they saw this technology that they didn't fully understand or whatever, but they didn't fight it with any real meaningfulness. They they just surrendered. And we don't really know what their deal is. They don't have to tell us because I still great big C stuff is still parked there. But um, all I know for sure is that we don't make very much money from that. Very like relatively small compared to what he obviously is able to make from from all of us. So we've been duped. And, uh, you know, the people that were supposed to look after us, they sold the shop. They gave it up. They're hiding behind their desks. Yeah. The war is over. So it, while it's good as a consumer to have free access to music, what it, the, the consequence will be is why, where will new music come from when it can't be monetized in a meaningful way? When people devalue what their art is to such an extent that it is literally valueless, then it is valueless. Like it's not, you won't be able to afford to survive on what you do. And we're going to lose artists. We're going to, people won't be able to do it. There's a, that 1% thing that applies, there's like, if you're a billion streamer or whatever, yeah, you might have some clout with Daniel Ek or whatever. And, but, you know, generally, if you're, I'm a legacy artist, I've sold a couple million records, I've got, I've lost 11 Junos, I've won a 15 or 20 ECMAs, like, if I can't make a living from the streaming services, then who, the right. first timers, are very few of them are going to have a chance. Yeah. So we'll lose that incubate, we'll lose that very necessary thing. And I would say to Mr. Eck, if he's listening to your podcast, that listen, you know, um, we as artists, we could have really used the passive income from record sales, from music sales right now in the pandemic. We could have really used that right now because we can't tour now. Yeah. And you've basically shut that down. So, you, you know, if you can afford to pay us more than one one thousandth of a cent, because it's like 0. 0.00043 or 0. 0.00033. So one, what, almost just literally one one thousandth of a cent, right? Yeah. Per stream. Like you can't afford it because you've made so much money. So don't tell us you can't afford it. It's not fair. Yeah. You know, especially now. It hurts now. So anyway, I'm, I'm not, you know, I know I can, I know I'm not going to win that fight. But I'm just going to say it for what it is, man. It's, it's going to be the end. It's going to be the end of music as we know it. Yeah. I don't know what's next, but I'm too old to fucking care.
<laughs> what I'm gonna do? Fair enough. Irish. I do shanties, and if you want one, you can, you can listen to. I took all my stuff off Spotify except like a sampler, but if you want to listen to any of my previous back catalog, you can stream it on my website. And if you want to purchase uh, uh, digital or physical, we have a limited edition thousand CDs. We have just over 300 left. And you know what? I really appreciate the people who stood up and bought those because people generally do under, start to understand about Spotify and how little we make. But people do want to support artists, and I really appreciate it. This is a way you can have this music, what I do, and support my family, which is meaningful to me. It's everything to me. Uh, and so that website is seanmccannsings.com. Yep. seanmccannsings.com. Well, uh, Sean, the new album is uh, Shanty Man. This has been a, a real delight. Thanks so much for, for taking the time today. Thanks, brother. You go and enjoy your weekend. And uh, Shanty on, man. Stay calm. Shanty on. Stay calm, Shanty on. Take care. Take care, brother. Cheers. That was my conversation with musician and activist Sean McCann. His new album is Shanty Man. You can get it by visiting his website, seanmccannsings.com. There is also other merch available, and you can see where he's speaking next, doing one of his uh, musical keynotes. And just generally connect with him uh, if you want. That is Sean McCann Sings, S-E-A-N-M-C-C-A-N-N Sings.com. And his new album is Shanty Man. That boat does it for me today. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Endeavors on Apple, Spotify, Google, Deezer, Amazon Music, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can visit me on social media at Endeavors Radio. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.